Amen. Would you remain standing and join me as we pray? I want to come before God on behalf this morning of, of our nation and on behalf of us and other churches just like us, as soon as I get this fixed. And uh, just pray that God would, would reveal himself to us this morning. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, we come before you uh, so grateful that we can sing the truths of that song. Life is worth the living just because you live, that, that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. God, what incredible truths. We need those truths, God, at a time where life is challenging, life is frustrating at times. We look around at, at our nation and realize that the year we've gone through, the political season that we have gone through has been tough. And it wasn't just the election that's ended tough. It seems like that we now have a new president inaugurated. The, the nation seems as, as, as fatigued and as divided as it has ever been. Father God, we pray on behalf of this nation um, for the miracle of, of national unity. We, we realize there's, there's no way we're ever all going to think alike. That's why we have different political points of view. But, but somehow, God, by your mercy, would you cause us to come together and function according to the core principles that, that unite us as a nation? God, would you bring about a stability and a new era of calm that would allow um, science, especially with this virus and, and the, the efforts against it, the, the economy and the other things that need to happen in this country to flourish because there is predictability and stability. God, we just pray for this nation uh, to heal. Father God, I pray that that your people and the gospel would be at the center of that healing. That those of us who are followers of Jesus would be, would be first and foremost to recognize that, that the main thing must remain the main thing. And the main thing is your desire to redeem a lost world, your heart to reconnect us with yourself because you love us and to give us the life that we all so deeply long for, whether we realize it's what we're longing for or not. Father, I pray that, that that would so characterize us that, that even though other things matter and even though we have uh, views about the issues of the day and about our political situation, even though we have views about the outgoing president and the incoming president, even though we have views about all these things, God, would you make us a people whose core identity is none of that? But I pray on behalf of, of churches, gospel-centered, Jesus-loving churches across this nation this morning, Father God, that you would make us a people whose identity is rooted in the fact that our sins are many, but your mercy is more. And that that's who we are, and that's, that's all we have to offer to a world around us. I pray, Father God, that when people interact with us, that's what they would see. That they would not just see a particular political point of view or a social agenda, but that they would see a people who love the gospel of Jesus, who love Jesus and that they would see that they can love you as well, that you have come to redeem women and men from all walks of life, all tribes, tongues, and nations, as you put it in Scripture, to give life to where there is death. And we pray that life would triumph in the name of your Son. Uh, much closer to home, God, I pray specifically for our own church and for other churches right here in the Portland area, as our own city and our own region uh, continues to grapple with uh, everything that took place this past year with a downtown that is still empty and vandalized, with uh, businesses that are hurting, with uh, virus fears, with a political landscape that continues to be tumultuous. Father, I pray for, for, for us, 
and for gospel-centered churches all across the city this morning for a fresh vision. Not a new vision, because your mission is the same, but maybe a fresh vision, a fresh look at the vision of who you've called us to be, of who you are. God, that we as your people would see the beauty of Jesus so much more clearly that it would strengthen weary hearts. God, I'm exhausted. So many of us are exhausted. But Father God, I pray that the beauty of Christ and the the purpose, the indomitable purpose that you have given to us to pursue would reinvigorate weary hearts, that we would not be tempted, that we would not give in to the temptation to put our hope in lesser victories, be they social or political or anything else. But Father, that above all as a people, we would be about the beauty of Christ, experiencing that ourselves and delighted to show that through how we live and how we speak to those around us. God, use us, we pray. Refresh our hearts this morning, even now, as we pray, as we sing, as we look to your word, as we are one church, though not able to gather together as one yet physically. We are gathered at the same time, whether we're tuning in, whether we're here this morning in either room. Unite our hearts as one church, refreshed by your spirit, and eager to go see, God, how you will change us and those around us through the gospel for our good and your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And thank you, team, for leading us. I so appreciate the work you guys put in. Uh, You can continue to uh, pray for us as our uh, search for a new associate pastor continues. That process is moving. We're talking to a couple of promising candidates. Uh, We will have more to share when we have more to share, but I just want you to know that process is ongoing. We covet your prayers for that. We're just excited to see what God is going to do in and through our church this year. Uh, Though it may entail change, in fact, it almost certainly will entail change because uh, that's life, isn't it? (laughs) Life is often change. Have you ever... Have you ever had that experience where you set out some kind of major goal for your life and you, you set off after that goal, but in the process of getting there, you had to rewrite your plan uh, sometimes multiple times <laughs> because things just you know, came up that you weren't expecting. So you're pursuing the same goal, but you're like, oh, for a while we're pursuing it here and oh, that came up. So now we got to kind of go this way and like your goal hasn't changed, but how you get there has to change. Have you ever had to, to do that? Amy and I have often reflected that, that that feels like the story of our first, you know, three or four years of marriage. Uh, we got married and moved to Portland with a plan for me to get through seminary, graduate school, in about three and a half years. And uh, then we were going to do some other things, and our initial thought was we would head off to the mission field and start a family. So we had this like three, or in my mind it was like a three and a half year plan to, to get through graduate school. And uh, she was going to work full-time, and I was going to work part-time, and we were going to get this thing done. And uh, almost immediately, our plans had to change. Um, Employment challenges arose. Uh, We were both able to find work, and we always had enough, thank God. We never starved. Um, But it pretty quickly became apparent that I was going to have to pull back from full-time studies and do more work as Amy continued to work as well in order to make things work. And so I pulled back from full-time studies and was going to school part-time, what we thought was temporarily, um, until then some health challenges arose for us that made those temporary changes seem a little bit more durable, like we may have to do this for a while Longer, so that's okay. We'll we'll readjust. We'll we'll 
make changes you know, to our plan, but we're still pursuing this goal. We're trying to, get through, trying to get me through school. And then finally, as if that second set of adjustments wasn't enough, we had one other set of circumstances ar- arise, and uh, the new set of circumstances that arose was named Elizabeth. Um, our first child came along uh, about three years into our marriage. So roughly like the time of my original plan, I was going to be finishing graduate school. I'm like 40% of the way through, maybe close to halfway through. I still got a long ways to go. And suddenly it's like, wait a minute, now we've got a baby coming. And she and I had both agreed, like we want her to be able to, to be a full-time mom when we have kids. And so suddenly we're readjusting our plans again. I continued to work full-time and go to school part-time. Amy focused on creating a home and being the fabulous mother that she has been to both of our precious kids. And the upshot of that story is that eight and a half years into my three-and-a-half-year plan, I finished graduate school. (laughs) We got there. Yes, thank you, thank you. It's very touching. No, seriously, I mean, it's, it's almost funny now to look back on, like, how much we had to change. We do sometimes laugh about it. <clears throat> Other times we remember how painful it was at the time, and it's not so funny. Um, but one thing I can say when I look back on all those years is that um, it certainly went very differently than we had planned. I apologize for this. I'll get this thing fixed so you guys don't have to see me constantly poking at it. There we go. Um, things constantly went a little bit different than we had planned, but I can look back and say I don't have regrets. Really, you know, I don't have regrets. We, we never lost sight of the goal. And there were moments, believe me, where I got really discouraged and I thought like, God, am I really going to ever finish school? I really wanted to. And, you know, we definitely had our moments of discouragement, but I don't know that we ever, and we prayed and we thought like, God, are we really doing the right thing? But I don't know that we ever really got close to saying, maybe God doesn't want us to do this. I mean, it's like, no, we're here. I, we knew I needed a seminary education. We were committed to that goal. It just looked real different getting there with multiple changes, but we never lost sight of the goal, and by God's grace, we got there. Life is often like that, you know. You set a goal, and you often have to make multiple adjustments on your path to getting there as unanticipated realities crop up. Turns out the same thing that could be true for individuals and families is also true for church families. Groups of Christians who have covenanted together to be a local church. The church is set by her Lord on a mission. There's a goal, there's a task, and that never really changes. And yet, often we have to make adjustments along the way. We've been studying the book uh, book of Acts together, which which shows us what what the main things are for a church. And, And let's just personalize this right off the bat. Although what I'm about to say applies to any church, let's talk about how it applies to our church. Uh, God has told us what our mission is as Harvest Community Church, and we've seen that from the earliest chapters here in the book of Acts. We've seen that God's main mission is to make disciples. That's a Bible word for for followers. He's trying to redeem people. He loves us and wants us to be his sons and daughters again as he created us to be, but we no longer are because of our own sin, which separates us from him. God is, God is about bridging that sin gap. That's what Halbert talked about just a moment ago, the blood over the doorpost of the house. God is here to make sacrifices for our sin on his own behalf, by himself on our behalf so that it reunites us with him. That makes us his children, that makes us his followers, or what the Bible calls a disciple. Okay? So if God's mission is to make disciples, how does he do it? Three ways, by spreading the gospel, the good news of Jesus, 
in the power of the Holy Spirit through local churches. That's what we've seen so far. The the first couple chapters of this book really set that out. God is making disciples uh, by the spread of the gospel, which is the content of God's plan, his message, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power behind his plan. God is the one who changes hearts. And lastly, he does it through local churches, which are both the product and the platform for his plan. What we meant by that was the gospel produces Local churches, people become followers of Jesus, and then we covenant together to live out the gospel as a local church community. So churches are the result of God's plan. Disciples are already made. Praise God, that's us. But then we get to become now the new platform for God's plan. The church becomes the basis upon which the gospel spreads still further. All of this we saw from Acts chapter 2. That kind of lays the foundation. Now we've been following this narrative on through. From chapter 3 on... As readers, we sort of get a, we get a front row seat as history's first church puts this mission into practice. History's first church puts this mission into practice, and as we see them do that, we learn lots of things along the way that are still applicable to us, though we live at a very different time and in a very different culture. As we move through chapters 3, 4, and 5, we see that opposition to the church's mission is building from outside the church. And we're also starting to see challenges arise from within the church. Particularly, we saw this in chapter 5 a couple of Sundays ago when a couple of members of the church are tempted by sin and they lie to God. And so sin within the church becomes a threat to its mission and has to be dealt with. At every turn, the church has to adjust to changing circumstances. But here's the thing, they never lose sight of the mission. That's one of the big lessons from from what's going on in this book. They never lose sight of the mission. And and this is a lesson for us. In today's passage in Acts chapter 6, we're going to see that our church must adapt to changing environments while staying relentlessly focused on its mission. Our church must adjust and change to changing environments while remaining relentlessly focused on our mission. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn them to Acts chapter 6, where we read the brief passage from verses 1 through 7 of a set of adjustments this first church made. Let me read this passage, and then we'll notice a couple of things about it. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, the Bible says this. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. 
And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Father, this is your word given to us. You've told us that your word would not come back void. It would accomplish the purpose for which you sent it out. We pray that you would accomplish your purpose for sending this, your word, out to us this morning. For our good and your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. What I'd like to do in the few minutes we have together is uh, a couple of things. First of all, let's just step back and fill in a few of the details so we can maybe understand the context of, of what just took place in this brief um, and seemingly straightforward narrative. Once we understand it, I want to just then take two main observations away. The first is how the church was adjusting to changing circumstances and what lessons we can draw from that. The second is how they remained relentlessly focused on their mission at the same time and what we can learn from that. So, so first of all, let's make sure we understand what's going on if we back up. Uh, there's a setting and, and a problem that arises right away in verse 1. Um, the disciples were increasing in number, the church is growing, uh, but a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. <laughs> who are the Hellenists? Who are the Hebrews? What was going on with widows? And what was the daily distribution? What's going on here? In brief, what's happening here is that that early church uh, had what often day, nowadays is called a benevolence ministry. Um, we have one too. We actually have a part of our church finances that we call our caring fund. And people contribute to it and we don't use any of that for operating expenses. We don't like pay the light bill or the staff or anything like that from that money. That all comes out of our general fund. That money is specifically set aside to help people in need, particularly within our church community. And that's what they had going on here. They had an organized a benevolence ministry. Members of the first century church donated money to care for the needy among them, and these funds were then distributed. In fact, we already saw this. If you turn a page back to Acts chapter 4, in verse 34, we were already given a little bit of a window into this. Acts 4.34 said, There was not a needy person among them, this first century church, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds, they brought the cash of what was sold, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each person as they had need. So clearly there was this system set up whereby the church donated money so that they could care for one another, and they had it organized so that the right people got that Care Now, they, uh, part of that clearly is they had organized a daily distribution of probably money to go buy food. It could have actually been a distribution of food, but it was more likely that the money that was um, here mentioned in Acts chapter 4, they had set up a daily distribution to some of the widows in the church. So it was either every day they would come get a distribution, or maybe some came on Monday and some came Tuesday. I don't exactly know, but they were doing this on a daily basis. So the church was really large, several thousand people at this point. So there were probably a lot of needy people who were receiving at least dozens, maybe a few hundred, we don't know. But there was, it was a lot of people. And so daily they were making careful distributions of money to buy food for people who had the need. And, and why was this widows? Why are the widows particularly mentioned here? They were clearly one of the main recipients of this initial benevolence ministry because widows were a particularly vulnerable group of people economically uh, at that point in time and in that culture. 
In fact, it had been for centuries, which is why both the Old and the New Testaments mention widows and orphans as two key groups of people that are most regularly vulnerable economically because in those cultures and at those times they often were. Without the same level of property rights that both men and women enjoy in our society today, widows, and particularly those who are too old to either work or to go remarry, were generally cared for by their extended families. Now, if they had no extended family, or at least none close by, they were really in danger of destitution. They could be out on the street, wondering where their next meal was going to come from. And some Bible scholars have pointed out that there's reason to believe that there was an inordinately large number of widows in and around the city of Jerusalem, where the church is located at this time. Because it seems like it was a common practice that Jewish people who were kind of distributed all around the Roman Empire, they lived in all kinds of different cultures and nations, but oftentimes in their elderly years, like their version of retirement or whatever, they would move to uh, Jerusalem so that they could live out their last few years and die in the holy city. That was apparently a fairly common practice. And so you have these older elderly couples moving to Jerusalem to live out their final years. And if the husband died before the wife, suddenly there she is, an elderly widow. She's got no family at all, or at least none nearby, right? Her, her family up in Greece can't just Venmo her food money every day at this point. So she's kind of left on her own and she becomes a Christian. She joins the church and suddenly they've got all these widows who need to be cared for. So the church had an organized system of providing for their basic needs. So what was the problem then? This conflict arises between two groups identified here as the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Basically, those are all members of the Jerusalem church. They're Christians. They've repented and believed that Jesus is the Messiah. They've joined this church. They're fellow church members together. Uh, They're all Jewish because almost everybody in the first century church at this point was ethnically Jewish. But some of them were Jews who had lived most of their life out in these other places. They had grown up in, in cultures and communities where the dominant cultural influences were not Jewish. And so they would speak Greek as their primary language because that was the main language of the Roman Empire at the day in this part of the empire. And also, um, not only their primary language, but, but many of the cultural assumptions that they had were largely influenced by these other communities, these other nations in which they grew up. Now, that's that's the Hellenists that he's talking about, these people that had lived most of their lives in other places, and though they were Jewish, they spoke a different language, and they just lived different culturally, but now they're here in Jerusalem, they're part of this church, and they're rubbing shoulders with other Jewish Christians who grew up in and around Jerusalem. They grew up in Palestine, in the Holy Land. So their native tongue was uh, Aramaic, which is basically Hebrew. It's a dialect of Hebrew. Um, They grew up in the holy area, speaking the holy language, right? The language of the Old Testament. When a culture more directly shaped by God's word. So the point is that while while virtually all church members were Jewish, there were language and cultural differences, and those began to surface. Those began to surface. Some of these Hellenistic Jews, these Greek-influenced Jewish people, who could be made to feel inferior to their sort of like Hebrew Jewish brothers and sisters who were native to the Holy Land and whose first language was the Holy Language. Well, some of those Hellenistic Jews noticed that some of the Hellenistic widows weren't receiving the daily distribution. And they're like, wait a minute, now there's a problem. Now there's a problem. Now let me point out at this point, 
that one of the interesting things about this passage is that there's no explicit sin mentioned in it. Unlike the scene that we saw from Acts chapter 5, where a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, came and lied to God and to the apostles about what they'd done, and that was a sin, and it was called out, and they had to pay for it. That's not what's going on here. Apparently, they weren't being intentionally uh, overlooked. There's no rebuke in this passage. No sin is called out. No repentance is called for. Rather, what we just read is a story of how history's first church faced the problems of growth in a rapidly changing environment that it caused while staying true to their God-given mission. Now, even though there was no sin mentioned here, the danger is very real. The danger is very real. Unity tends to fracture along ethnic and cultural lines. Did we not just learn that last year? In any group of people, we naturally have a tendency to divide into camps. It can be for political reasons, it can be for economic reasons, it can be all sorts of reasons, but one of the most common ones is ethnic reasons. And so here you had these um, ethnically uh, Greek people, Greek-speaking people, and these ethnically Jewish and Hebrew-speaking people, and all of a sudden you can see the the fault line start to, to crack the surface of the church's unity. The church has been facing threats from without, We saw that last Sunday from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling religious council who's already arrested the church leaders and threatened them and beaten them publicly at least once and is threatening to kill them. And now the church is starting to face challenges from within. If the church is going to remain a beacon to the gospel that God intends it to be, unity must be maintained. So how are they going to get through this? Well, just to wrap up our look at making sure we understand what happened, their solution was to delegate leadership. Their solution was to delegate leadership. It seems like the apostles initially did a lot of the distributing of the funds. That's definitely the impression you get when you read uh, chapter 4 that we just saw a moment ago. Like people raised money and they brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. The apostles are like this Peter and James and John, Jesus' original disciples. And they're kind of the leaders of the church. And then it says from that point it got distributed. Now it doesn't say they did all the distributing, but it sure sounds like initially they had a pretty strong hand in how this money was accounted for and distributed, which, which kind of makes sense, right? I mean, you got... Hundreds and hundreds of people, brand new Christian converts, they don't really know each other. The one group of people that has cachet, that has authority, that has trust, is those church leaders. The guys who were with Jesus, and the guys who were commissioned by Jesus, and the guys who were doing miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. Everybody can trust them, so the money goes to them and they oversee its distribution. That makes sense. But the task was just getting too big by the time we get to chapter 6. The church wasn't functioning well in this area anymore, and as a result, unity was being threatened. Again, it doesn't seem like anybody was willfully neglecting anyone. It just started getting too big and complicated, and now all of a sudden, people were starting to get missed. And unity was threatened. The apostles recognized their inability to handle both this task and their primary job, and so they announced that they're going to stay focused on their primary job. In verse 2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve the tables. 
Now, depending on how that comes across when you read it in English, that can sound like they're, they're demeaning serving at tables, like, we've got a big important job, we can't just go wait on tables. That's not at all what they're actually saying. In fact, they liken their job to the task that they're refusing to do. In, in verse 4, they say, you appoint some guys for this, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Do you know in the original language that word ministry is the same as the word serve in verse 2? Essentially what the apostles are saying is, we don't have the capacity to serve the word of God to the congregation and serve the daily distribution. Both are important. We just can't do them both. And our primary calling is this. We would have to give this up if we were to fix this problem. And that would not serve anybody well. So, widows need to be fed. The word of God needs to be taught. And they recognized they couldn't do both. So the apostles led the congregation, equipping them to identify additional leaders to oversee the distribution task. The congregation agreed. They choose the seven guys who are named here. Interesting. (laughs) This is all very personal and very real. These are real people who are chosen for a real task. And then what was the result? Verse 7. What could have been extremely divisive wasn't. What could have been extremely divisive wasn't. The adjustment was made. The church continued to grow and to thrive. All right, our first task is done. Let me just stop here and ask, why is this in the Bible? And if you've been listening to me for the last few minutes wondering the same thing, let me just put it out there. (laughs) Is this just like some sort of organizational footnote? Now, some of you like strongly organizationally gifted people, you manager types are all like, this is awesome! (laughs) Administration saves the day, you know? And for like those of you who are gifted that way, the rest of us are grateful because somebody has to organize stuff around here, you know? But for many of us, we're like, okay, that's interesting, but is that like an org chart in the Bible? I'm sorry, I just can't get excited about that, right? (laughs) Why Why is this in the Bible? Why did did God put this here for all of us, whether we're administratively gifted or not, to read? What are we supposed to take away from it? How does this help us right now? Again, I think this is a story about how the church adjusted to a changing environment without losing sight of its mission, and churches always have to do that. We always have to do it, but it's a lot easier to talk about in principle than it is to do in practice because we get used to how we do things and we don't want to change how we do things. Sometimes things change within the church. Sometimes things change outside the church and we're like, it's been good enough for the last 20 years. Why shouldn't it be good enough for now? Change is hard. We don't always want to adjust. But just as with this first century Jerusalem church, new problems and challenges will always arise, both from within the church community and new opportunities crop up uh, where there weren't opportunities before and things change outside the church community. All of this means that communicating the truth and beauty of Jesus may look different, what it means to do that effectively, I should say, may look different than it did a decade ago or a generation ago. And what it means to effectively communicate the truth and beauty of Jesus will probably look different a decade from now or a generation from now than it does today. The message and the mission are always unchanged. But we pursue, the way we pursue it constantly changes. 
And in this brief narrative, we get an example of how history's first church adjusted its practices and even its structures to effectively meet a new challenge, all without losing sight of the never-changing mission that Jesus gave his church. So with the time we've got left, let's, let's take a look at how each of those shows itself in this passage. How did they keep their laser focus on the mission? And then secondly, we'll look at how they made changes to address the needs and did both of those at the same time. Let's start with how they stayed on mission. Just make a couple observations about this brief text. First of all, the leaders of the church, the apostles, Jesus' original disciples, understood that they clearly had a specific job to do. And they talked about it openly. Um, Again, verse 2, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And then again in verse 4, we, um, you guys, we'll, we'll set aside another group for this task. We'll talk about them in a moment. But we will devote ourselves. We'll commit ourselves. This is what we're giving ourselves to. And what is it? We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, serving the word, teaching the Bible. The apostles recognize that while they cannot do everything, they must do some things. And they list their job description here fairly early on as teaching the word of God to the church, being devoted to prayer, and then by example, they're also giving high-level oversight to the church. Like they're, they're leading the charge in this. It's interesting that the complaint came to them and they didn't say, you know what, that's beneath us. Somebody just go figure that out, <laughs> right? They didn't totally disengage from it, but they also didn't roll up their sleeves and say, all right, we're the trusted ones, we're going to fix this. Man, this is an emergency, this is a problem, this could really become divisive in the church, so we're going all in and we're going to devote ourselves to fixing this problem. They didn't do that either. They're giving a high-level oversight. They're like, we've got to lead the church in this, but we can't give ourselves to fixing that because our job is prayer, the ministry of the word, and high-level oversight. Where did they get that idea? Well, probably lots of places, but the ideas are not new even here in the book of Acts. What did we see? back from Acts chapter 2 that Jesus is doing. He's making disciples by spreading the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. That's the word of God. What is, the Bible, what is God's message to us? And how does it center on the person and work of Christ? Everything has got to be rooted in what God has called us to do. And we will lose sight of that if we're not constantly going to the Bible and seeing it here over and over again in a hundred different ways. That's why the teaching of the Bible is so important. They say, we've got to do that. (laughs) We cannot lose sight of that mission. Man, we could go fix this problem of inequitable distribution of money to widows and lose sight of this and we're dead. That does not diminish the problem of the inequitable distribution of wealth. That just says they recognize we've got to stay on mission and this church will drift from mission if we don't give adequate time to studying the Bible and explaining it regularly so that all of us are regularly thinking God's thoughts after him as he's revealed them in scripture. God is making disciples by spreading the gospel. Secondly, in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the power of the Holy Spirit. We've got to have God in this thing. If God's not in it, it's going nowhere. And so they say we've got to be regularly devoted to prayer, understanding that everything we do, we've got to beg God to bring his presence in here, fill us with his spirit, and change the hearts and lives of men and women. We've got to give time to prayer. Certainly they weren't the only ones praying, 
But they recognize that's a core part of who they are as leaders of the church. If we don't have time to pray because we're fixing other problems, we're going to start getting self-reliant, not God-reliant, and then we're dead. And then lastly, he's making disciples spread of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit through local churches. The unity of this church is essential. So they said, we are going to pay attention to this task, but we're going to equip other people to lead. That job description, explaining the word of God and teaching God's word, secondly, committed to prayer, and thirdly, given to high-level oversight, becomes sort of the basis of what would later the New Testament would call elders in a church. In fact, even by the end of the book of Acts, we're going to see that everywhere new churches started, they were appointing elders. That's the word they used back then. We still use that word today. It's not really a 21st century American word, but it's a good Bible word, so we keep using it. Elders are just a group of men that are given themselves to pastoring and shepherding a local church, primarily through teaching God's word, through prayer, and through giving oversight to a local body. It's talked about, it becomes more fully developed as an office later, and talked about specifically in terms of his qualifications in the New Testament books of uh, 1 Timothy and Titus. But here, in the history's first church, the, the apostles, Jesus' disciples, are serving that role and setting an example. So they recognized they had a job to do to keep the church on its mission. But you know what? It's not just about what these leaders were doing. Do you notice how actively involved the entire church membership was in this whole thing? They too had a job. Their job was to affirm, to receive, and to own the leadership of their local congregation. It strikes me as remarkable, like they could have pushed back on the apostles' plan, but they didn't. Right? They went to the guys who were the recognized and trusted leaders and said, there's a problem, we need to do something about it. And those guys said, yeah, you're right, but you know what? We're not going to be the ones to fix it. And I can, could you put yourself in that place? You're like, what do you mean? You're not going to fix it. We want you to appoint some other people to fix it. Well, who are they? I want, I want, I want Pastor Peter to fix it. He's the guy I trust. I want him to speak into my need. They could have pushed back, but they didn't. In a phrase that I think is extremely significant, verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering. You see, there's a sense of, of intentionality there. The church members are listening and saying, okay, you guys are leading us in how to solve this problem, and we're thinking about it, and we're hearing you, and we're agreeing. We're agreeing. We're going to accept that. It's not just a passive thing. You guys are the boss, so I guess that's what we're doing. Like, it's an active thing. We agree with you. That's the right way to do it. We need you guys focused on your job, but we also need somebody else focused on this job. We agree, and we're in it. You realize that we talk a lot about empowering leaders in the context of church ministry. And usually that means people who are in leadership positions, like staff people, recruiting volunteers and giving people jobs to do and empowering them to lead. And that is often the case. But do you realize empowering leadership goes both ways? This first century church congregation is empowering the apostles to lead the way God called them to lead by agreeing and affirming and accepting and not insisting, no, stop doing what you think you need to do and start doing what I feel like I want you to do. As early as this church was in its development, 
There's a remarkable sense of, of congregational maturity here where they say, you do have a job that God has given you. We agree, we want you to do that. But this needs attention too. Let's figure out a way to do that. I love how the congregation empowers its own leadership to lead. They didn't push back, but also notice, just before we move on, they did feedback. <laughs> they did feedback. I mentioned a moment ago, this wasn't just a passive, like, okay, you guys are in charge, I guess that's what we're doing. Like, it's an active thing. The very fact that the apostles are even looking at this problem is because people said, hey, there's a problem and it's got to be fixed. Like, there were what organizational um, management people today would call communication feedback loops, right? There was ways for the leaders to talk to the members and for the members to feed back to the leaders. Communication was a part of that process. Do Do you notice that the entire congregation was called together? In verse um, 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. By the way, a little quick aside, that means they knew who the full number of disciples were. This, this is for free. It doesn't have much to do with where we're going today, so I'll just throw it off there and get back on it. But sometimes there's this idea that, that early churches were super just organic and not very highly organized, and it was just awesome because it was all like free-flowing, and that's just not the case. You have to bring some organization to any movement to keep it going. And, and churches from the earliest day, like they knew who their leaders were, they knew who their members were, they knew what their jobs were. They were still figuring some of that out, but they had organization. They knew who their widows were, they knew who was getting how much money. I don't know how they figured that out, but they had a system, right? They were organized. Well, the, the, the leaders call the full membership together. They didn't just call the Hellenists who were complaining. You guys are concerned about this. Never mind, the rest of you don't have to worry about it. We'll just deal with this issue. They didn't just get the widows together. You guys are the ones impacted, so let's talk to our members who are widows. None of the rest of you have to worry about it. They called everybody together. And they're like, guys, this is a problem with us. It's our church. It's our problem. And they all recognized, yep, that's right. We're going to own that. We're going to speak into it. And we're going to work together to fix it. Both the leaders and the members of the church heard the concern, realized there was an issue that needed to be addressed, They never lost sight of the mission even as this new need arose. We've got to keep leaning on the Spirit and preaching the gospel and seeing the world changed by Him. What do we take away from this before we move on to our last point? So many possible things. Let me just share a little bit of where God led me this week. We've been saying ever since September as a church, because of 2020 and everything that this year had, this past year had been, our environment has changed, but our mission has not. Our environment has changed, but our mission has not. It's no news to anybody in this room. The environment in 2020 in which we function as a church changed more in a shorter period of time than at any point I can remember probably in any of our lifetimes, certainly in mine. It's not unprecedented in history, but it's not normal, and it's definitely not been our experience, or at least not mine. Our environment has changed radically. The pandemic has disrupted all of our lives, economically and socially, even our church life. The unjustifiable and brutal murder of George Floyd last spring, and all the ensuing race demonstrations and even riots in our beloved downtown in Portland further divided an already stressed community. 
And then an intensely contentious political environment in which all of this stuff played out. It was unbelievable. We don't even yet know what the long-term implications are going to be. But kind of everybody that I'm reading about, Christian people, not Christian people, anybody who's paying attention, all the people that are writing about this are saying, man, whatever we go back to, the world's probably just not going to be quite the same as it was before. So much has changed. So, what's 2021 going to be? Well, I don't know exactly, (laughs) because nobody other than God does, but based on what we can tell right now, Lord willing, 2021 will be the year in which we begin the slow emergence from this COVID pandemic. Lord willing, as vaccines get spread around and just stuff happens, I mean, gradually, God, please, we will see some of these restrictions kind of loosen, um, things uh, increasing freedoms and, and, and lessening fears from viruses and things like that. As church staff, we're already planning now for what that might look like. Like, again, we're not sure when, but it's like, boy, if we're going to resume some of the program activities we had done in the past and shut down because of COVID, like, it's going to take us a while to figure that out. So, like, let's start that work now. And the first thing we're putting significant time into right now is trying to clarify our vision as a church. Um, Our elders and our staff I'm going to spend some significant time on that over these next couple months. Again, not inventing a new vision, just clarifying our vision. What has God called us to? And and how does that lead us to say, um, since God has called us to make disciples, what does it mean to make a disciple? And how does that process work? And if we're clear about that, then when it comes time to say, hey, let's restart this program or let's expand this program, we can understand where it fits in who we are. Because as we get back to what we're doing, we don't want to lose sight of our mission. If you remember this church, Harvest is your home, you can empower (laughs) your elders and your staff. You know that? You can empower us. It helps if you know who we are and what we're doing. So I'm trying to show you a little bit about what your elders are doing. We've had some recent changes in our elder board. Um, your elder team right now consists of myself, Dave Armantrout, Chad Peterson, Mark Brewer, Brent Lentz, Jim Barclay. The six of us are meeting twice a month as we always do, plus additional meetings as needed. We're praying, we're seeking clarity, we're going to be reading through a book together, we're looking for God's wisdom on God. Where do you want to lead us and how do we emerge from COVID in a way that we're aligned with our mission? Our staff is doing much the same things. Our children's ministry team right now is starting the plan of like, what is it going to look like to restart Sunday school for kids on Sunday mornings? We don't yet know when that's going to happen, but it's going to take a lot of work. And so we're reaching out and we're connecting with people. We're trying to figure out how do we do that well in service of our mission. A lot of this is going on behind the scenes. We'll continue to share more on on Sunday mornings and through congregational meetings and so on as we move. But you you can empower us by knowing kind of what we're doing giving us input, giving us feedback, especially when it's asked for, encouraging us by all means, praying for us, praying for us. Another way you can empower us is to really engage with this series through the book of Acts. Uh, There's a reason we've chosen Acts. It's because it shows us what our mission is as a church, and then we can look at how are we going to do that 
as restrictions, Lord willing, gradually loosen up over the course of this year. The more of us are really in to the scripture and into God's heart to use us to make disciples, the more unified we will be as we move forward together. As their environment changed, they stayed fixated on the mission. But at the same time, they did adapt to the changing needs. So lastly, let's look at some of the things in this passage that shows us how they did that. Every single person, every group in the church had a role in addressing the need that is outlined in this passage. The apostles had a role. We've kind of already talked about it. They called the whole congregation together. Like This was like history's first documented church congregational meeting. Right here, Acts chapter 6. They called the whole congregation together. They said, this is an us problem. We've got to fix it uh, all together. They proposed appointing a new group of leaders to handle the need. So they empowered the congregation to own the need by selecting leaders that they would follow and trust. It's a good model for us as church leaders. As somebody who does this for a living, my default is like, oh, if it's a problem, I've got to jump in and fix it. You know, it's this like overinflated sense of responsibility thing, which probably sounds more... Um, praiseworthy than it really is. (laughs) No, no, no. The leaders empowered the congregation to empower other leaders to fix this problem. Speaking of those other leaders, think about these seven, these guys who are mentioned by name. Think about who these guys were. These were members of the church, and they're being asked to step up into a role in which they're going to shoulder significant responsibility. This is not their main job. (laughs) This is what they're going to do to help their church be The church are going to take on the additional time and responsibility of administrating a fairly large system where all kinds of money is coming in. It has to be accounted for appropriately. Um, Guidelines about who's going to receive those distributions have to be um, made and followed up on, and then they've got to be there to actually distribute the money in an appropriate way. And by the way, guess what? They are now going to be the first ones to hear about the complaints when they arise. Anybody excited to sign up for this? (laughs) You work hard, you organize well. You take care of 300 people really well. You make one mistake, and guess what? You're then going to stay extra long to hear from the one person who had the one mistake, right? I mean, sometimes this kind of stuff is a thankless job. But these are seven guys that were willing to step up and say, yep, I'm going to work to resolve every issue and run this well, both to free the apostles to do their job and to help the church do its job of caring for these widows. And if churches don't have men and women willing to step into leadership roles, church doesn't happen. Church doesn't happen. So the apostles empowered the congregation to choose leaders. The leaders chosen stepped up to serve and to give of themselves. Last but not least, the congregation itself had a huge role to play in resolving this issue. They received leadership from this new group of seven people that they themselves chose. Like they recognize these new leaders. You know, now if I'm concerned about unfairness in the daily distribution, I'm not going to get the ear of Pastor James or Pastor Peter. I'm going to have to go talk to Nicanor or Parmenas, whoever the blazes those guys are. By the way, you never hear those names again in the rest of the Bible. The first two guys mentioned, Stephen, is going to become the subject of the next couple chapters. He's a major player. Uh, The next one mentioned, Philip, also makes an appearance later in the book of Acts. The other five you never hear from again. They're not like known major leaders. They're simply faithful people who served in their congregation, and the congregation embraced it. What I love about this, I think, is that it, 
it sounds kind of familiar to me when I look across the landscape of our congregation. Man, we have made so many adjustments. It's ridiculous, <laughs> as have most churches in the last 12 months. Adjustments doesn't even seem like the right word. We've had to completely reinvent how we do ministry sometimes multiple times over. And in every case, we've had multiple people step up to make things happen. I love the fact that seven people are mentioned here by first name. These are real people. Let me just share a little bit with you what's been happening in the life of our church. Not to shine the spotlight on any people, but I just want to give some first names because they're real people, people who are part of our church that are making ministry happen. A little over a year ago, Arnold had started leading our technical teams all behind the scenes, supervising other teams in the whole process when COVID hit, and we suddenly had to build live streaming from scratch. None of us knew that was coming. None of us knew what to do. He's been hugely instrumental in building additional teams. Now we've got camera crews, people behind these cameras that you're watching us through right now. If you're uh, in the multipurpose room or you're checking our online stream, we've got people like Austin and Tommy and Alex and Sophia and Caleb and others who are coming and running cameras for us so that we can do what we're doing. We've had a whole new check out Savior applause because I'm just going to keep going. Actually, you can give them applause. I don't care. Let's celebrate. Um, we've had, we had to set up this whole check-in process that I just announced. We get to reduce. Yes! <laughs> but you know what? We still need to keep headcounts and we still need to welcome and we still need to make sure that there's masking and it's a safe place if we're going to have people here. And so we've had people like Dennis and Robin step up to not only help uh, hosts but help coordinate hosts and schedule people and make sure we're on top of the stuff we're supposed to be on top of so that people like Jordan and myself can focus on prayer and the ministry of the word and connecting with people and we're not out there with checklists all the time. We have people like Leslie, who's now leading our missions team, which itself is made up of nine or ten people in our church, a group of church members that are keeping us outward focused as a church at a time when it would be very easy for us to just go total internal and woe is us and let's just take care of ourselves. And they're helping us give to the ministry of Love, Inc. and Grace Extended Ministries and First Image and be relevant in our community. These are just to name a few. I could go on and on, talk about small group leaders, talk about huddle group leaders in the refuge, our, our youth ministry, on and on and on it goes. I'm celebrating that today. And we just want to continue to blow wind in those sails and see more leaders empowered and see more of us as congregation members step up to say, yes, <laughs> when you get that call from children's ministry saying, hey, you've got kids, uh, we're thinking about starting this, where are you at? Man, please answer that call. We need to hear from you. We need to hear from you. When we're looking for people to step up and lead groups, if God is calling you to, to, to step into leadership, step into that role. Because God and his people need to empower one another to do the work of the ministry. When we have congregational meetings. We've done two of them since COVID hit. They were both completely online experiences. Many of you tuned in. We are thankful for that. We have a feedback opportunity because we're using the streaming site that many of you are watching us on right now that has a comment section. So we're able to not only give information, but also hear back from you and respond and clarify. These things are so important and they're harder to do these days, but I love the way that our church has engaged. I don't know yet exactly what changes are going to take place. What I do know is that over the course of this year, as we, Lord willing, 
see restrictions lift and we're able to resume some of our previous activities, we're probably not going to resume them in exactly the same way they were before. Because our environment has changed, but our mission hasn't. And so we want to be a church that looks at that and says, God, what have you called us to? How can we come together and serve you, even if we have to do it differently now for the same purpose? Maybe we served you this way for a long time. That's great, but now we've got to pivot because the environment is still, uh, the, the, the mission is still the same. The North Star is still out there, but now the current's blowing this way. So now we've got to go this way because we want to make Jesus known. We want to see people come to faith in Christ. We want to see people's lives changed, marriages saved, souls saved, hope restored and the glory of God to spread throughout the earth. Amen? It happens when God makes disciples through the proclamation of the gospel in the power of the Spirit through local churches like ours. We need to adapt to changing needs without losing sight of our mission. And we can do that together. Would you join us in that? That's my heart for that. Let me pray for us and ask the worship team to come back up here. Spirit of God, I thank you for putting such a seemingly mechanical, organizational tidbit, episode, scene into the narrative. God, you didn't have to put that in the Bible. I'm sure there were hundreds and hundreds of behind-the-scenes organizational decisions that first century churches made that never make it into the pages of Scripture, but you put this one here. And God, I pray that you would help us to hear your voice, that you would help us to see our role in that, that you would, through the proclamation of your word and the move of the Spirit, bring about a greater unity in our church as we move forward into this year. God, we pray that this would indeed be the year that we can begin emerging from this COVID restriction. We need to be together. We long to be together. God, would you beat back the coronavirus? Would you tame the pandemic? so that people can connect with one another again? Would you reinvigorate our vision and value for assembling together for having been apart for so long? And yet, God, even as we are able, Lord willing, to do more, we pray that you would help us to have no sacred cows in how we do things. God, we may, be, may we be characterized as a church not by being committed to doing this this way because it's what we know and are comfortable with, but doing whatever needs to be done to see the truth and the beauty of Jesus made known to more and more people in our community who desperately need you just as we do. God, use this church as a lighthouse. Shine the glory of the gospel and the love that you have for us in Christ. And we pray that we would see hundreds of people in our community come to faith in Christ this year. God, may 2021 be the year that hundreds of our neighbors find hope and life in Christ through the ministry of this church and others just like us. God, it's a big ask. You're a big God. And so we ask you for that. Use us. It's for our good and your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us, please, as we close our service in song.